This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by L.A. Opera music director James Conlon, who's conducting L.A. Opera's current run of Leonard Bernstein's Candide, starring Kelsey Grammer. Conlon and I will talk about the enduring legacy of Bernstein in this, his 100th anniversary year, and about the battle between optimism and pessimism in Candide and how pragmatism ultimately wins. It's all coming up on this edition of Behind the Curtain. Can we start our conversation by just sort of looking at the world of of classical music today? Is there a figure in classical music today who is no one's comparable but like Leonard Bernstein in any possible way, or is he just absolutely unique? Leonard Bernstein, as are individuals who are outstanding in their centuries, you can't be replicated. So uh, the answer is... No, there's nobody like him. And there won't be and shouldn't be. Even if a person of equal brilliance uh, comes along, they're still not Leonard Bernstein. I mean, Leonard Bernstein was, belongs to his era, and his era became, I mean, fr- frankly, the latter half of the 20th century, and even now, as we see, the long shadow on the, on the equation of a centenary. Homo universalis, this is a man, a, a Renaissance man, who composed, played the piano, uh, conducted, taught, lectured, was a public figure in many, many respects, and he did it all, and and so, no, <laughs> there's no one like him. And I think it's a mistake for people to try to imitate that or believe that they are. That's uh, For me, that's a dead end. Mm-hmm. So, uh, because admire, yes, adore, even, all of that, but artists still have to be themselves and who they are, so. Yeah. What was it like growing up in Bernstein's New York City? Well, I was lucky in many respects because I grew up in New York and experienced many great things in the uh, 60s. I mean, that's when I really started to uh, focus on classical music. So he was there as this giant personality, inspiring, interesting, annoying to some. You know, I mean, he had a personality. You liked it or you didn't, or you liked some things about it. You didn't like other things about it. But to me, you know, there he was. He was a, he was a beacon. And one of the things, I mean, many things that I got from that experience. One was his devotion to certain composers, to certain ideas, certain ways of looking at music. Um, that he had the courage to impose. I noticed you used that word in your article, talking about Mahler. He imposed Mahler on audiences. And, you know, he certainly, I mean, in the back of my mind, I think of him often because of my activities with Recovered Voices. Mm -hmm. Uh, People say, well, you know, why are you doing this? Well, I know why I'm doing it. We've been through that many, many times. But it's also, how do you go about it? I learned from him that you just have to keep insisting because it takes a long time with certain certain things and you know we're now we are now living in a different age where everybody's so concerned about box office and and is this going to sell and are people going to come to that well it used to be different it used to be that this was what was presented by orchestras by opera companies by particular artists and the conviction of those artists 
led to public, hmm. uh, well, I'm not going to say consumption, I don't like that word, but that the public followed it because, and they followed him in particular, mm -hmm. because they knew they were going to have a good time. They knew that they were not going to be bored. So if he said, okay, we're going to do a Nielsen Symphony, who's that? But I know if I'm going to go see Leonard Bernstein, I know that it's going to be exciting or interesting. And he, he parlayed that great personality and that great sense of excitement that he brought to everything on behalf of lots of people, American composers, uh, contemporary composers, like Carl Nielsen, or people like that who were not so, you know, were just not that popular. Of course, Mahler, I mean, it, he was the spark that was probably needed to make Mahler permanent. I mean, now nobody needs to sell Mahler to anybody, mm -hmm. but it's not that long ago that it there wasn't there was still a need. Was he the first? No. Bruno Walter was there. Metropolis had been there. Klemper had been there, but something about his deep identification with Mahler and his ability to focus and inflame the the public for that served that purpose. His podium style obviously um, was unique as well, and I wonder what effect that had on on the um, the acceptance of. You know, going to sit through a 90-minute symphony that you may um, not be able to fully digest, only hearing it once. And, and here you see on the podium this charismatic figure um, who is, in a way, communicating with the audience because you can see into his vision of what this big behemoth thing is that... You know, maybe someone walking into the concert hall may not have that depth of knowledge or be able to have a full experience of a piece of music, but the charisma of the person presenting it to you helps in a way. Does that make sense? Yes, well, of course. And charisma is um, not quantifiable. It's often also almost impossible to say why somebody has a charisma. And a, a good example in talking about his podium style, he was charismatic with a style that many could describe as flamboyant, uh, <laughs> over-the-top, exaggerated, who was equally charismatic was Carrion, who was you know, absolute master <laughs> of control and, I would say, discretion. I mean, he was mesmerizing by almost doing nothing or seeming to do nothing. So the charisma is, of course, an element that you can't explain. And so after that, it's a question of taste. I myself was not attracted to, you know, his podium personality. And so I, you know, sort of came from another place there and said, no, this is not me, and this is not what I want to be, and so I wasn't. That's not at all to suggest that I didn't recognize absolutely everything about his genius, and I did. But I just, you know, then you make a choice. I said, well, no, that to me, it's not me, and it's, is it a plus? Um, maybe it is, but that doesn't have, and you don't have to be. You, you don't have to choose that. So if you're talking about the generation of people who were influenced, I was influenced in a more subtle way than a physical way. The physical way left me a little bit on the outside. And, you know, I didn't care for that kind of that kind of personality on the podium. And I have, you know, I have my own personality, which is, you know, more understated, but I still believe in it. And so on. But uh, that certainly his, you know, the, the, the visual aspect is something that was very helpful precisely to people who didn't feel that they could understand it all with their ears. So it served a great purpose. Yes. And, and you talked about the sort of um, his ability to be highbrow, middlebrow, and lowbrow all at the same time. Um, not to suggest that the way he conducted was either low or highbrow, but 
you know, the, the way that he was able to connect with people on multiple levels as an intellectual, but also as a populist for classical music, an evangelist for classical music in places where it's, it wasn't intellectual circles. You know, I find that to be something that's really, really special as well. Look at what interested him. On the one hand, American, maybe not as apple pie, but American in the sense that he had a vision of what he wanted American music and something that was was uh, indigenous to our land to become the music. He wanted to write the great American opera that would be part of the classical music tradition at the same time it would be specifically America. And this is what he did. This is what he wanted. And he and he worked on that all his life. I think he was probably disappointed and dissatisfied at the end of his life with what he hadn't done. Mm. I think he was never satisfied. But he he did it. I mean we we have an enormous body of literature uh, from him that is all of those things. But as I think, you know, look, Candide is French novel from the 18th century. Um, West Side Story is really Shakespeare. I mean, it's Romeo and Juliet. Just before he wrote both of those, um, he wrote The Serenade for Violin, which is Plato's Symposium. Uh, I mean, that's pretty heady stuff, wouldn't you say? And and yet, it's American. So, I mean, he, he was able to bring the worlds together. Some people liked the synthesis, others didn't. Something that's too eclectic. Uh, it's not, it doesn't have a clear line. That doesn't bother me. You know, eclectic, so what? If it's interesting, and it is. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about his um, social criticism through his music? So um, he obviously has done that in many, many works. In uh, West Side Story, you know, the to me the tragedy is, is not that he dies at the end. The tragedy is that the hate continues. Candide, we have you know, strong social criticism coming in some cases, as you mentioned, from McCarthyism in in the United States. How, you know, maybe this, you know, this flag-waving optimism is something that we should perhaps temper just a bit. Can you talk a little bit about how he's using art to speak to a specific time, but also timelessness. Well, there's a timelessness, I think, in uh, in the story of Candida. I mean, uh, Voltaire as well as Bernstein. There's a timelessness because it deals with philosophical issues, really. And so, at the end of the end of these adventures and these incredible lives, as exaggerated and impossible as some of it is, the questions are. Is life good? Is life bad? Is should you be optimistic? Should you be pessimistic? You know, uh, the answer is life is life. Well, simple, but also at the same time profound. I mean, we we have to we have to find meaning or search for meaning, or give up looking for meaning in our lives because life is life. We we live, and that's pretty much all we know is that we live. And uh, so the philosophy incorporated in a lot of Candide is, of course, just as timely now as it was in the time of Voltaire and just as timely as it was in the 50s. I think many of us did not know and many still don't know or realize how Bernstein was pursued and troubled and, if not victimized, at least certainly under a very, very, very stern eye of the era of McCarthyism of the House on Un-American Activities by the FBI, by the State Department. I mean, he was refused a passport at one point in his life. 
So he knew much more about that than we actually, you know, later when the whole story was told and he becomes an American hero and all that, it's very easy to forget that. But I can assure you that in 1956, when he was writing this, it was still very, very, very much in his consciousness. Now, he was politically far to the left. Yes, he was. And uh, so he fell afoul of the right wing. Uh, but eventually he also fell afoul of the new liberalism who had actually made, th they were liberals from many point of view, uh, economics and, and social theory, but they were also new warriors in the Cold War against what was becoming clear to be the Stalinist menace. And so there were people like Bernstein who were sort of were in a category, a very small category, and they felt sort of portrayed by everybody. Why? Because, you know, we have to f not forget, first of all, his father was was an immigrant from what was now, I guess is now the Ukraine, but uh, his father was a Russian, and the Russians had been our allies in the World War War. Why shouldn't somebody in 1948 or 49, when he was 20 years old and was forming his ideas, why should there be, the, you know, the knee-jerk reaction against Russians that later became part of the Cold War. There was every reason for it not to be. An enormous number of intellectuals, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, were still, you know, were still considering uh, the positive elements of Marxism. So Aaron Copeland, uh, you know, uh, Blitzstein, uh, th these were these are important persons, uh, even Gershwin. I mean, these are persons now that, of course, they're, they're, they're icons. Uh, but at the time, they were suspects. Why is this important today? It's just simply because the, the lurking danger of witch hunts and abuse of power are, are always with us. So it's particularly important that we don't forget that a little bit of the story of Candide is the story of the witch hunts. Arthur Miller, you know, The Crucible was written right before this. That's it's pretty, pretty relevant today, I believe. Mm-hmm. This piece um, was written and then revised and then revised and then revised. You know, he got to the end of his life and uh, maybe he was never satisfied. Do you think he ever came to a sense of completeness, uh, a sense of, yeah, this is finished now with Candide? I don't know personally. But there are people who would know the answer to that question, but I doubt it because the evidence is that it was still the changes were still going on posthumously, which means there were people who felt that they were close to him, or that they felt that they, on good authority, could say, "Yeah, well, we're now going to make these changes because he he really wanted this." Now. So, so yes, clearly, Candide never seems to to have the versions never seem to have finished, and uh, because there's now such a selection of possibilities, there's more music than you can actually do, and there are more texts than you can actually do, um, you know, it may be that there will never be such a thing as a definitive version of Candide. But then on the other hand, why does there have to be? Uh, you know, Pierre Boulez wrote some, some pretty interesting essays on pieces don't have to have a single version. A piece is never finished. I mean, he went back to notation constantly. Uh, it doesn't have to. The piece exists in many versions, and many. And so what? I let it. And so, so does Candide. And I think part of what, what also, played a role in that is that because Candide was not easily definable, 
its uh, genre is not easily definable. Is it a musical comedy? Is it an operetta? Is it an opera? What are we going to call this baby? You know, and again, there I would say it doesn't. the The answer to that it's interesting to talk about the influences of Broadway, of jazz, of court vile, very important in this in this mix. Gilbert and Sullivan, Hispanic music, all those influences are interesting, and do they help us define what the actual what category? And I would say no, uh, no category. It doesn't have to have a category. It's Candide. It's what it is. Pieces of art are not required to be a part of a category. In fact, sometimes they demand that they are not to be put in a category or they challenge categories. So I'm, I'm not at all I'll trouble that. But it was clear that having it pass from 1956 to 1958 to the 60s to the 70s, it was looking for improvement. And some of that was based on the idea that it was a flop. Well, I think it had 63 performances or so, 60-somewhat performances. You know, if a new opera were written and got 60 performances now, that would be a, a historical. It doesn't happen. But 60 performances in a commercial venture on Broadway is considered a flop. Then, you know, it was, very, it was variously and mostly explicable in terms of the text. You start out with the text of Lillian Hellman, that's already pretty high level, and you know, Dorothy Parker's in there, and then of course Sondheim came in. So the text changed more than the music did. You know, there are, there's almost identical music that exists in these various versions with totally different texts. So it all is a fascinating question. Uh, at any point, a decision is made, this is what we're doing, this is Cadid, and will the ship sail as it is about to be presented. So how do you decide? What what criteria do you use to say, okay, this is the version that we're going to do at Los Angeles Opera? Well, we simply, uh, I now, I, this is not an opera I ever expected to conduct, <laughs> and I am thrilled to, beyond description of how, uh, how much I've found enriching to my personal life mm. uh, by having to do this. And so I probably would yeah, I might start out by saying, okay, well, I want to see now, maybe figure out, not that I would be authorized to do so, but i say, what would be the best combination or what would be a combination that would interest me to do that? But we accepted a production, which is a fine production of Francesca Zambello, first rate, and we accepted, I mean, that's the production. The version comes, you know, intact with that production, so we respected that and, and did that. So, uh, I mean, I'm absolutely convinced. I could tell already from the dress rehearsal. We had a dress rehearsal you know, full of, I'm a, 2,000, I don't know how many, I mean, students, fabulous. Mm. For the first time we've been able to do that, uh, it was a m major event for us to be able to bring in that many students. And they were wild the whole time. They were attentive. They were vociferous in a good way. They were enthusiastic at the end. I have no doubt about the success and the audience appeal of this production and this effort with Candide and I urge everybody to come to it, mm. as I do always anyway. <laughs> but this is a special moment, you know, celebrating the centennial of Bernstein's birth. Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, why don't we wrap up there with this with this year that um, coming up in August is the actual uh, 100th anniversary of his birth. Um, we're going to be exposed to so much of his music that um, unfortunately doesn't get played as often as some of uh, our other 20th century American composers. 
Um, you know, I remember when Gustavo took over um, at the L.A. Phil, he said, you know, first, first season or two, we're going to do all of the Bernstein symphonies. And I'm thinking, when's the last time a Bernstein symphony got played? Um, and he did them, and, and they were totally convincing and really powerful works. And, you know, here we are now in a moment where, you know, we're going to get to hear so much more of Bernstein's music. Um, talk a little bit about how uh, exciting that must be for for you as a as someone who gets to, as you say, conduct this piece that you never thought you'd be able to conduct. Well, uh, of course, I agree. Um, I did the Kaddish about t- a little over 10 years ago. Powerful work. I do the Age of Anxiety any opportunity. I've done it with Jean-Yves Thibaudet several times. Uh, Joyce Yang was one of the winners of Van Cliburn some years ago. Uh, it's a piece, that's a piece that I keep in my active repertory. Any opportunity I get, I do it. I've never done Jeremiah. I would love to do it. No, no question. Uh, it's all there, and we're going to hear it now, and I think that's great. And I think we should continue to hear it afterwards because one of the problems with anniversaries is everybody says after the anniversary, okay, well, we've done that now. I say no. That's an opportunity, just as it was with Benjamin Britten here a few years ago. Hear as much as you can and then keep going with it. James Conlon is the music director of L.A. Opera. He's conducting the company's current run of Candide by Leonard Bernstein. Performances run through February 18th. The production stars Kelsey Grammer, Jack Swanson, Aaron Morley, and Christine Ebersol. You can get all the details at laopera.com. This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. Thank you.